Hello, this is Haley Nauman, and you're listening to the Maybe Baby Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about my 27th newsletter. It's called the Pain Pleasure Paradox. And before I bring on my guest, I want to talk a little bit about what this newsletter is about, just in case you didn't have a chance to read it, only because my conversation uh, that you're about to hear is pretty chaotic and jumps around and might be less useful to hear if you don't understand the context. So this newsletter was about antinatalism and a piece I read on this concept in 2017 in The New Yorker. Um, The piece was an interview with a philosopher named David Benatar, and David essentially believes that life is so painful and so difficult that it's not worth living for anybody, and he's sort of against basically procreation. The reason I wanted to talk a little bit about his ideas is when I was alone for a couple weeks in September when Avi drove home to Detroit for a couple weeks, I was thinking a lot about David's Sorry, I don't know why I just referred to him by his first name. I was thinking a lot about Benatar's um, assertion that life, even the best of lives, is ultimately just a series of inconveniences. And, you know, being in quarantine and being alone, I was sort of more in touch with that perspective and kind of wondering what the point of life was. Um, And I had a few experiences that showed me there was some nuance missing in Benatar's perspective, at least in my opinion. And so what I ended up writing about this week was the interstitial relationship between pain and pleasure and how hard it is to separate them from the human experience and from each other, and also from meaning and what makes life fulfilling for humanity um, and all creatures. So I brought on my really good friend T. Wise. He is a writer that I worked with at Manderpeller. That's actually how I met him. But um, I also just love who he is, not just how he writes. And we always have really interesting conversations. And I thought he would be a perfect person to bring in and talk about these sort of massive existential ideas because that's the kind of thinker he is. Um, he's also hilarious and is able to bring levity to darkness in a way that I found or always find appealing, but found particularly useful for this kind of topic. So I am not going to do a reading of the newsletter this week. Well, should I? Maybe I will. Well, it's kind of a long conversation, so I'm scared people will be afraid of the long runtime. But actually, everyone keeps telling me to stop stress about that. So maybe I will do a reading at the end, just in case um, people think that's useful. I'm I'm actually considering separating those two components so that people who want to listen can, and it will be a separate episode. I just need to kind of work out the kinks on that. So thank you for bearing with me in the meantime. Um, I will put a little minute marker in the show notes about when the reading starts in case you want to jump to that first and then come back to the interview. Two quick things to note before we get going. The first is that we do jump around a lot in this conversation, but I think that it kind of all comes together and connects in the end in surprising ways. So thank you for bearing witness to our chaos. Um, And the second thing is you're going to jump in here on me realizing that I forgot to plug in my headphones and apologizing because we had just spent 20 minutes dealing with other technical difficulties. So in case you're confused as to what's going on, that's what's going on. Okay, let's get started. Hi, T. 
Hey. <laughs> We've already been talking for like 20 minutes, maybe more, but I do need to state for the record that you look adorable. <laughs> Thanks. I'm going to put that right back to you, especially because I like your little bobby pinned bangs. I'm growing them out. Well, I'm about to be with you. I'm about to be bobby pinned bobby up here. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. I just realized I don't have my headphones plugged in. <laughs> How are you going to do that to us after all that? One second. <laughs> I don't mean this in a mean way, but I'm really relieved that you're the source of the technology issue, not me, because I'm usually the source. <laughs> now we're actually in action. Hi, T. Hey. We were just discussing before I realized that I was improperly recording that we're both growing out our hair. Right. And that, that you, soon you're going to have to have to teach me um to bobby pin my my situation. <laughs> The bobby pins are actually, they kind of train my hair so then I can take them out. Like, look. Oh. Ish? They're like, this is where we stay. This is who we are now. (laughs) Do you approve of me growing out my bangs? I mean, I liked your bangs, but I approve of you doing whatever makes you feel best in yourself, I guess. (sighs) This is what everyone says. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. I want the cold hard truth. I mean, I liked your bangs, and I think you're going to look great with no bangs. I feel like it's less of a dis... I feel like more if you were like, T, should I should I get bangs? That would be a heavier question for you to ask me than should I grow my bangs out. That's true. I know. <laughs> I was just trying to decide if they're too much a part of my look now, but we're gonna we're just going to try it for a little bit. Well, that's interesting you say that because I've been going through a similar dilemma hair is deep man because i've been thinking oh i should cut my hair off um and grow it all out at once and then i was like if i cut my hair off then i'm just like joe blow walking down the street because my hair is so tied up with my identity like right being queer being funky being a wizard you know (laughs) if i don't have my hair but then i guess we're still us without our bangs and our wizard hair you know Uh, but are we no (laughs) wait have you ever had short hair yeah I had short hair. So, like, when I did my, what I referred to as my first transition, like, started living in the gender before I, like, medically transitioned, I cut my hair off. I went to this, like, strip mall barber in Cincinnati, and this old white woman named, like, Bertha or something cut my hair. <laughs> and I just had it, like, buzz cut. And then I did, like, a faux hawk, and I did, mm. like, a fade high on top fade. I used to have short hair for a while. How did that feel, like, the first time you went? How long was your hair before you buzzed it that day? Well, my hair was like long, long when I was in high school, but when I buzzed it that day, it was like kind of curly mop. Like I was doing this very uncomfortable for everyone, me and the world (laughs) included thing where like I would wear like bandanas with curly hair and like big dangly earrings and flare jeans. It was for no one would it have been a good look, especially for me. But we were working it out. What else can we do? But walk further into ourselves as we go along. Uh, Well, it's funny you brought that up because I was just, did you ever read the book Middlesex? Yes. I just read it and I thought of it because it's propping up my computer right now. But um, there was like a huge plot point was the kid going to get their hair all cut off. And it was mm-hmm. ended up like being like one of the like the culmination of the plot. And it was a big moment. So it just reminded me when you said hair is important. Did you like that book? I did. I didn't read it soon enough. I mean, more recently enough to be able to like chat with you about its plot mm-hmm. points. But I remember in general, I liked it. Yeah. Did you? Um, I did like it. I wouldn't say I'm like going crazy for it. <laughs> Fair. I thought that there, I thought there was some bloated parts. 
And I kind of felt like the most interesting thing I wanted to hear about was like sort of passed over. Mm. Um, but I did like it. I don't know. I I remember somebody damning me that there was something problematic about it, but I don't. I but I don't remember what that was. I mean, my thing is, like, unless we're all writing exactly our experience and stories, aren't there going to be something right problematic that prop p- props up pops up <laughs> pops and props. <laughs> yeah well i mean he eugenides i mean he concluded like a, or included a lot of science so maybe it's possible that maybe maybe he like spread some misinformation but luckily i don't even remember any of the science so if he lied <laughs> it did not make an impact on me but anyway i think about that a lot like i read so much but then i remember so little so i'm like what am i doing am i treading water like what's happening here <laughs> you know what i like to comfort myself with is that it changes you in the way it needs to, and you don't have to remember how or why. I love that. And that's how I feel. And I didn't have words to how I felt. And you gave them to me, which is one of the gifts you give me and lots of people. Ooh, I ran out of breath with that affirmation. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only way I want my affirmations delivered. Breathlessly. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Also, same for you. I was actually just looking back through some of the writing of yours we worked on together and there's so much that's relevant to the topic we're going to talk about today. Well, I feel like pain and pleasure are like basically all I think, talk, and feel about. So <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> pain and pleasure is your brand? Yeah, I guess so. Okay, so you read the newsletter, right? I did. Loved it. I also had just been having that conversation about the anti-natalism. How do you say that? I was saying anti-natalism. Great. Um, with my sister the other day. Um, really? Literally the day, yeah. And so I was like, this is amazingly, we're all synced up, linked up. Some people commented and saying that they had also just been thinking about it. I think that happens a lot with topics I write about, maybe because actually everyone's thinking about the same things at the same time. Well, especially now. Right. I was going to say, I think that thought process or that, you know, people thinking about that is coming from the deep despair <laughs> and depression <laughs> permeating the world where we're like, why the fuck are we here? Who did this to us? Type thing. hundred <laughs> percent. Actually, that was one of my hesitancies about writing on this topic right now, especially the way I, I covered it. Cause I ended up sort of poking and prodding his theory, his, especially his assertion that like life, even the happiest of lives is just a series of inconveniences. And so I was examining what you might consider just like inconveniences, like locking yourself out or losing your wallet Mm -hmm. or things that kind of happen to anybody and everybody. Mm -hmm. And afterward, I remember the morning it was going to get published like two hours before I was like up staring at the ceiling and always like, what? And it's always, and I was like, I'm just nervous that people are going to think that I'm saying that like getting locked out or losing my wallet is like the suffering that (laughs) humanity endures. (laughs) And that's not what I meant at all, of course. But It did not read that way. I think it read, if anything, like being like sometimes sitting in those smaller moments of being locked out is a way of connecting to the bigger locked outness happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. You would see it that way, too. Um, (laughs) Well, but somebody, but then I woke up this morning. And you would see it that way. (laughs) I woke up this morning, actually, to somebody commenting something to that effect, though, sort of uh, fulfilling my fear, which is that. It would be misunderstood in that way. Um, which, by the way, like, I feel like misunderstandings in writing are, like, not necessarily the reader's fault. They can o- often be the writer's or it, it can go both ways. But right. um, 
I ended up, whenever I get comments like that, I go really in my head about it. I ended up doing like a little CBT exercise. Have you ever done those before? I don't know what that means. So earlier, I mean, we're really getting off track, but I'll show you the book because it's right here. I can cut this out. Earlier in the quarantine, I worked on this book. I don't nice. know if you can read it. It's called The Anti-Anxiety Notebook. Yeah. And it's like a CBT workbook. And I, I wrote these like essays throughout it. It was like a copywriting gig. Um, but you basically have to go through these worksheets. I'm actually just going to read it too because you can't really see it. But this is what like a classic CBT workbook is that like a therapist would give you. But this allows you to do it by yourself. Uh-huh. So you take a moment where like something happened and made you feel this way. So first you have to write what happened in like the most objective of terms. Then you have to write what is going through your mind. And you're just supposed to like objectively describe your thoughts. And then what emotions are you feeling? And then rate those on a scale. (laughs) And then what thought patterns do you recognize in your response? And there's some options. So it could be like all or nothing, blaming others, catastrophizing, emotional reasoning, fortune telling, labeling, magnifying the negative, mind reading, overgeneralization, self-blaming, should statements. Wow. Stuff like that. Helpful. And then you have to say, how can you think about the situation differently? And you have to challenge your reaction. (laughs) I want to know, first of all, I find all that to be very helpful. And I might get that book for myself or other people, except for I'm like, would someone be offended if I got them that book? I don't know. (laughs) You know what I mean? Except for no, because we have to stop stigmatizing all the shit we're going, all of us are going through and just, you know, more so talking about more than ever. But that last one, what did you do with the comment that caused you to feel all those ways for the last thing on that page, which is a different way of thinking about it? Where did you get to? Well, I basically was thinking about my relationship with feedback Mm -hmm. and I I mean, not to get like full therapy about it, but I was thinking about my relationship with feedback as a child. And I was, my parents always told me that I was really good at taking feedback and that like they would give me something and I would be mature about it. And then I would like change my behavior and then they would be really proud. Mm -hmm. And so this was like part of how I like accepted love and felt loved. And so as an adult, I think of myself as being really receptive to feedback and like really responding to it and changing as a result. And it makes me like too open to it. And I feel with that I get negative feedback and I feel like I don't agree with it or I feel like it's in bad faith. I get, I think something, I mean, I'm still early in like sorting this out, but I think something triggers in me that I'm like not loved mm. or like can't, um, like don't know how to respond to it in a way that like upholds my worldview, which is that like to be loved or to be worthy of love, I need to be like pleasing everybody. Mm. Well, shit. <laughs> Just to keep it light, you know. <laughs> I mean, I also think that this serves as a um, a review for this book that this shit works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm still working through it. I, I don't even know if CBT would work for me. I've never used it before, but. It kind of seems obvious, like, I feel like that those exercises are what I do anyway when I'm right. going through something. But I think the act of writing it maybe is is useful. Yeah. I'm not sure. One final comment on, I don't know what this person's feedback was, but I know that I often feel really sad when people respond negatively or or, or don't like what I wrote or, like, take issue with it just because... 
in writing is my way of feeling a part of the world. And so then I'm like, oh, if the whole world doesn't get down with what I'm saying and sharing, does that mean I'm not a real part of the world? Like, does that, you know what I mean? Um, but we, yeah. have, we, of course, know that it doesn't mean that. Logically, we can think about that, right? But that feeling always sits with me. Like being like, but I want to speak to everybody at one time. Like I want to get through to every single human. And I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck would that mean? Like not everyone gets through to me, so... It's always funny balancing out the things that we can like think about logically and then the illogical feelings. That's such a good way of putting it. Because I, I think about that too, where I'm like, there are writers that I don't connect with everything they write, but I still really respect them as people. And there's some stuff they write that I love. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure maybe we'll be great friends in real life. And I don't really <laughs> think that my critiques, which I don't really share, that's the difference is like, I don't feel like I really give people critical feedback on the internet like in comment sections. Mm -hmm. I don't even like tweet provocative things, you know? <laughs> like that, like my essay about Emily Radikowski was like the most provocative thing I'd done. That was like a large piece of like criticism, which I think is kind of different than a comment. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, it's really hard for me to be like, I do not need to accept feedback that I do not agree with. Right. But then it's this funny thing where it's like, if we agreed with it already, wouldn't we have done it? And then we wouldn't need <laughs> feedback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the point, because I feel like the lesson you learn with feedback as a kid is that, like, yes, you're going to be defensive, but you need to stop and consider whether it's true. Mm -hmm. And I have that so built into me that, like, I end up considering whether things that are absolutely ludicrous are true. And I'm like, I know this isn't true. <laughs> not That's not to say that's the case with this comment, but, like, I just, I know, actually, I do, it is the case in this comment where I know that I was examining the idea that even a happy life is a series of inconveniences of pain. Mm -hmm. And I was countering that with examples from that. So I actually do feel pretty confident that I wasn't calling my anecdotes like examples of like human suffering. <laughs> so I don't know why I let that comment bother me. But Well, I think also, and this kind of will lead us back to that whole thing that got us off on this road, um, <laughs> that like, like the comment I was talking to my sister about like the conversation I was talking about that was so relevant. I couldn't believe it. Um, when I read the newsletter because she's like going through all this shit with her landlord and, um, and like, we're both low on work right now. We both tutor and freelance and we're like kind of struggling to get more clients and get more jobs. And, and at the same time, we were recognizing that like, we also have parents who have savings. And so we know that we're never going to be, homeless god forbid or go hungry which is so much more that can be said you know for so many people in the world but that the end of the day like maybe that even in itself like you look at the richest the most privileged people in the world and they're still not happy <laughs> you know what i mean like they're still like it's not like that equals having like your daily needs met actually equals having your internal needs met and um so while the at the forefront of what you have to handle is fucking make sure making sure people have a house and people have food to eat and people have education all that like we've seen throughout time that it's not the ticket to feeling spiritually and inside feeling whole and so i'm like that if anything is kind of maybe evidence to what dude what's his name uh benatar david benatar yeah was saying right and we all know that like we've seen that forever but i think and the other thing that was funny about it is i was talking to my dad recently i'm about to get real jewish you ready yeah i'm ready okay this all has been on my mind so much which like we were saying probably not a coincidence because everyone's thinking about what's the fucking meaning of life um but 
there's this, in the Talmud, there's this discussion that comes up between the ancient rabbis about whether or not it would have been better for humanity to never have been created. Like this idea of like, should maybe this was a bad idea. Maybe we just should never <laughs> cancel the plan. Right. And obviously they're thinking in this more simplistic terms of a creator deciding to create humans as we are and plop us down on this earth. Right. But they come there. The two houses can't agree. There's one house of, of the rabbis who's like, absolutely. Like for all our flaws, we're here to add to God's creation. We're here to like get meaning and find knowledge and connect and make beautiful things. And the other house is like, but that's not what we do. We destroy things. We suffer. We make each other suffer. And even when we have all of our needs met, there's still a longing that can never be satisfied. And that maybe it would have been better if we had just stayed in the cosmic womb. And I'm like, most days I end up feeling that way. <laughs> and I'm like, shit. <laughs> so that's, how, yeah, you know, it's interesting you brought up Judaism because somebody in the comments asked me how I like contended these ideas with my um, like secular, like non-religious perspective. And I'm curious um, how it relates to yours as someone who's like really involved in um, like your Jewish community and as someone who, I mean, you don't tutor, do you, tu- I know you tutor kids within your Jewish community, but is it about Judaism or is it, it is? Yeah, I get them. I tutor them to like prepare them for their bar and bat mitzvah services. So it's like okay, cool. straight up reading Torah, talking about God, talking about whether or not humanity should have been created with 12 year olds. It's very tantalizing. <laughs> <laughs> so like, what's your, I mean, we can open with this just to have you talk about it in general, but like, what's your relationship with, um, like your pain and your pleasure and your spirituality? Wow. What a question. Is that too general of a question? No, I love that kind of question. I'm like, I like a, a like lake of a question that I can swim (laughs) around in, you know? Um, well, Okay. I'm not a, a person, even though I, like, work so much with the text and, like, the tradition, I'm not at all a person who, like, believes this shit literally. But if we think about, I was just doing some writing the other day, actually, um, about the Garden of Eden. So if you take, which is, you know, one of the first stories, there's the creation story, and then we have the two first humans, quote-unquote, again, not disclaimer i do not believe this is fact it's mythology right um but the first two humans and they're in this paradise right and they have everything they need uh they're satisfied they're physically satisfied they're whatever and then the whole eating from the forbidden tree of knowledge which gives them consciousness which is the ancient people's way of explaining how did we get these brains like how did we get this ability to think in this way and to be conscious and aware um and then they're punished for that right like god had told them not to do that which we can question why the creator would want us not to have consciousness Uh, maybe because the creator knew it would come with all this pain and (laughs) and suffering to be conscious beings um but then as the first like clue to god right is that they um adam and eve are aware that they're naked and they get filled with shame right so they cover up and that's how god knows that they had broken the rule and eaten from the tree and then as punishment for that they're driven from the garden of eden and god says because of this you will have pain like pain will be part of your daily life for women people as the torah says it will be childbirth like that'll be incredibly painful to bring children into the world and for men it'll be having to work the land like toil 
every day of your life sweat you will only be able to eat by the sweat of your brow so if you think about it all of that i mean it explains so much it was how we got conscious it was how we got shame it was how we got pain it was how we always seem to be trying to make it to this like paradise of some sort but we never get there you know what i mean so i was thinking a lot about that and while i don't think that like i don't think it's a real story i think like it was a way of the ancient people acknowledging that we just have inherited this package right that pain and shame are part of the package that comes with being these conscious aware beings and i think that's really real because i think about the days that i feel like the best and i still am carrying a lot of pain within me and i had had a very beautiful life you know um but then the other thing that came up and now i'm gonna kind of jump all over the place from my conversation with my sister was i asked her and this is well i asked her i said would you rather be a less feeling person like, would you rather, like, just, you know, there seem to be a lot of people in the world who are able to move through it without feeling so deeply about everything. And she said no. And I was like, why not? This pain is, we feel like we're drowning in it so often. And she said, yeah, but then you don't get the other side of the coin. And so I wonder, actually, I'm going to flip this back onto you. I know that I like probably didn't answer your question at all, but we're, we're not rule-abiding citizens. Um, no, we're not. And I'll see you did. Okay, great. Um is do you agree with that like and i feel like i feel that too and when i've tried to comfort myself in the past like by being someone who gets really sad or feels really you know overwhelmed by pain a lot i'm like yeah but the pleasure like the wonder the amazement that i feel in living and in the world is worth it as the other side of that coin but are they two sides of the same coin i'm like are they two separate coins i think that they are i mean so the the line that I draw is is like depression, for, at least for myself, because I think that I, when I feel depressed, it's a very particular and specific framework that is much like Benatar's. It is this feeling that we are all inherently alone mm. and we'll never really understand each other, and I won't even understand myself. And life is just like a web of lies that we'll never be able to escape from. Everything is hard. Everything that feels good ends. And life is just an impossible, stupid, losing game. (laughs) Like, that's where I go. (laughs) And um, to me... I mean, this could be a defense mechanism, but to me, I I separate myself from that perspective because it does feel like um, it's not like a perspective that feels true to me when I'm feeling more uh, like neurotypical to Mm -hmm. use just like a a kind of sterile word. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when I'm feeling more like myself, I feel like things are hard. But I, I, but I think things are also wonderful and there's, and I'll, I can even have like a really bad day and it still doesn't feel like, why does, why should I even exist? (laughs) You know? So I, I think that like in my, in my better days, I feel like they are both sides of the same coin. Um, and you can't really have, I, I mean, I think I have. Like you said, similar to you, I, I have, like, a lot of privilege. Like, I, I'm just 
I'm lucky in that I have a lot of days where I can like see it as, as, as both sides as important, you know, whereas I think that someone who's living a, a tougher life, you know, making like feeling like the world is, is literally just like stacked against them in every possible way. I can see how it would be much harder to access this sort of like shiny idea that life is worth it for the challenges, you know? Mm. But like you said, I think it's not always like socioeconomic. This is something that I feel like America misunderstands pretty consistently, which Mm -hmm. is that like what gives, I mean, aside of course from like your basic needs being met, which is unfortunately like not happening for a lot of America. Right. But like beyond that, like what I think what makes people feel happy is like a sense of belonging. It it always comes back to belonging, and that's what so many people don't have. Right? Have you watched The Vow? No, but my cousin was just telling me about it. She's obsessed. Yeah, maybe you should give it a watch. But it's like it's 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 like a about a cult on it's an HBO documentary, but it's all about. This cult that, like, ultimately boils down to people wanting to belong to something. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's it's a lot more complicated than that. Like, there's a really, like, complex psychology to it. But I do think at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. And it's, like, says something about human existence. Well, for sure. And, I mean, my one of my students the other day, he's especially cheeky. Like, he loves to tell me, like, how much he doesn't believe in God. And then I'm like, what do you believe in? And he's like, science. And I'm like, that is God, you dummy but no i say it much more um constructively but he the other day was like judaism is just a cult all religions are a cult and i was like well what are you thinking like of a cult being and he's like when a bunch of people like believe in the same thing and like use it as a way to like structure their lives and on i'm like i associate cult with like a bad thing too (laughs) you know like i'm like i think we're like trained to be like ah that's creepy that leads to bad stuff but when he said it that way i was like well that in itself doesn't sound that wrong you know what i mean like (laughs) that's not what a cult is i know so i was like and that well he in that way kind of proved my point where i was like does that is there anything wrong with that but i mean like and i see that a lot especially like working within a jewish community like how many people come to it later in life or come to it when they're grieving or come to it you know like at these very human moments where you need connection the most and when it's easiest to feel lonely um and part of me i used to have an attitude about it like when people would just like join community when they needed something um you know what i mean like instead of being there just on a saturday or or when someone else was going through something you know what i mean but I don't know. I'm trying to let most of my judgmentalism go. That's one of my things. And to be like, to try to meet people where they are. And I was like, to me, that makes sense. Like, obviously, when you lose something, loss is something that connects all of us. Like, that might be one of the main, which kind of sad and go takes us back to the freaking conversation. Like, why is one of the most connective human experiences loss? (laughs) You know? It's like, oh, if that's the setup, then this is shitty. And I was talking to my mom. My parents are getting older as I get older, which is how it goes. And I was, like, thinking about it. I was like, this setup sucks. Like, to just, like, love people so hard and know that either they're going to lose you or you're going to lose them. I'm like... It's so cruel. It's terrible. That is a terrible setup. And then on the other hand, living a life without those deep connections and love is a whole different kind of suffering. So I'm like... It is, but it's also like 
I think that these relationships are important because we're going to lose them. You do? They would like if we had them forever, you don't think that we would they would be valuable and we would cherish them? Wait, I need to rack my my brain because I was just reading something about this. Um It was something about the the oh, I'm so frustrated with my brain because I'm not going to pull it out, but it was something about the importance of mortality. Mm-hmm. Um and us not understanding how important it is, how important our conception of the end is to how we glean meaning at the beginning and the middle. I mean, this is like what duality and like yin yang, <laughs> mm-hmm. like so many philosophies, if you go back, are really about is like the way the light and dark balance each other. I feel like I'm always coming back to this. And I think that one one thing that struck me about Benatar's perspective is that he was like, well, if we could fix all of the suffering, maybe, but like that won't happen. Like, look at history, it never happens. Right. And I thought, but we don't really want to fix all of it. Like, this is like what gives our life meaning. Yeah, kind of like the idea of like art made by a person who hasn't suffered, doesn't hit as hard type thing. Right. Wait, say that again. Like, that usually like art that has no, whether it's writing or music or whatever it is that has no, that the person who created it didn't suffer in some way, doesn't hit as hard is something like, I feel like I always thought, you know what I mean? Like this idea that a life without suffering wouldn't hit as hard. (laughs) Wouldn't have as, but like every life has suffering. No, of course. And that's what we're saying. Like along the spectrum of suffering, which is deep and wide. But I mean, I think about that because to take it back to the Judaism thing, like one of the um, motivations, it's not about an afterlife, which is a little different than other religions, right? Where you're trying, where you're like guiding your life and your decisions and your actions and how you treat other people based on what will happen to you after your life ends. You know what I mean? Like, don't do that or you'll go to hell. Do that and you'll go to heaven. Whereas in Judaism, it's more to bring the Messiah, to bring this age, this golden age where on this earth, like all life is kind of beautiful and perfect. You know what I mean? And I like think about that because I'm like, in that world, would people be happy? You know what I mean? Like, does it is it just like a built-in like blanket happiness that comes with it? You know what I mean? Like in that world, wouldn't we still like look at the stars and be like, I'm really fucking small and everyone I love will die? Well, I guess everyone's eternal when that world comes. No, totally. I mean, I think like the myth of utopia is something I think about a lot. I wrote about this early or maybe back in July. I was talking about um Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, in her chapter on utopias. I don't know if you've read that book. No, but I feel like you probably suggested it to me. Yeah, I've also probably, I feel like I've brought it up a few times now. Or maybe, maybe. But um, she talks about how people would try to create these perfect societies and they would always run up into some, or run into some kind of corruption or some, like, layer of exploitation or conflict. And that the problem is that they were trying to escape, like, the inherent messiness that comes with, like, a plurality of agents, which means, like, society is messy for a reason because we're dealing with a lot of different people's needs and ideas. You can't try to get rid of that messiness. You have to try to em- embrace it and um, work with it, like, come together and, like, work with the plurality of agents rather than having all one viewpoint in this like safe protected utopia where like the only way that's possible is if 
only one person has a voice and the others don't. Right. And I've been thinking, I think there's so many different ways to apply this. Like, I think if we look at like human relationships, there are relationships I have that are really, really easy and they're just not that deep. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I think that I, I, str- I kind of back away from conflict in my relationships, but sometimes I think that's made my relationships suffer. You know, and like, Mm -hmm. I think that you have to sometimes in order to like deepen relationships, you need to sort of like have it out about something or like get in a fight and like get over it or come back together. Yeah. Fighting is one of the most intimate things we do, I feel like. And I actually, yeah, I'm going to be, okay, this is the last time I'm going to do a Jewish reference, but I was talking with the same (laughs) naysayer kid, the cult thing. And there's this whole thing where like the word Israel actually means wrestling with God. And it was a person way before it was considered a place. And he, and I was asking him, I was like, what do you think it means to like wrestle with God? And he was like, oh, you're fighting with it. Um, like you're pushing it away. And I was like, actually, what do we physically do when we wrestle? And you're like tangled up with someone right wrestling is really intimate and then he got really weirded out because i said wrestling was intimate and then it like we had to get back on track after that (laughs) and i was like okay sorry i feel like the word intimate was too much for him um (laughs) wait how old is this kid he's 12 he's really cool and smart but if you think about it wrestling is intimate right like these are like two people tangled up like all on each other's bodies smelling and feeling and sweating on each other and it's kind of how i feel about that's the same way i feel about getting in a fight with a friend or a family member right um and that you're right like i have relationships like that too it's like i see you out at a party or like we smoke a spliff together or we this and that but like if i don't feel safe enough to fight with you believing that the relationship will make it to the other side then like that's not intimate or if i don't want to put the energy into telling you how i really feel you know what i mean or i don't want to get uncomfortable with you like to get uncomfortable with someone that's fucking intimate you know Right. It's like, it's the messiness of a plurality of ages. Like everybody actually having a voice in a relationship even, Mm -hmm. or like having an authentic voice. I think it's, I have shied away from that messiness in in the past. And I think now I feel more drawn to like embracing it or engaging with it. And I think, I think, I think this like with, with even like muscles, like to build up a muscle, you have to like tear it. Mm Mm-hmm. And, like, it comes back together stronger, like, not to just use, like, a really heavy-handed metaphor, but I feel like this is how I feel about, like, most worthwhile things. Like, they are, I think about writing, it's, like, it's so painful for me to Mm -hmm. write sometimes. And it's, like, the most worthwhile thing that I ever do. Mm -hmm. So, to me, and I mean, I'm kind of, like, a self-disciplined junkie, so I think take it with a grain of salt i have some that's something i need to work on anyway but i do have like such an intimate relationship between pain and pleasure for me that i think a life filled with pleasure just feels sort of like docile and apathetic and like atrophied muscles just flopping around (laughs) well it also is probably you just like knowing it's not real and not wanting something unreal. You know, like not being attracted right. to something that would be so unreal. Right, right, right. But I feel you. Well, here's a question about the writing thing. I have had that same feeling where it's like, and it actually has made me kind of trip trip up because like 
I would sit down to write and I would feel like filled with anxiety and I would like kind of avoid it and it would feel, I'd be like, go through really like self-deprecate, you know, like it would cause all, sometimes cause all this stuff that felt really shitty. And then I was like, does this mean I shouldn't be doing it? And I think that that's an interesting thing that we're like trained to believe that everything we should be doing should feel good or like, right? Like that it should either be making us money or it should feel really good. And I was like, is this a sign to me that this isn't what I should be doing? That like, it's not always bringing me joy. But again, that's unreal, right? Like what thing that is deep, that is like all of ourselves and all the pieces of ourselves would ever feel great all the time. But what do you think like about the, if it's painful, does that mean that we should stop doing it? Well, first of all, I'm drawn to pain. So as a, as a masochist. Aha. <laughs> no, I just mean like a professional masochist. To be clear, folks. <laughs> um. But do put kink in the parking lot because I want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll come back to that, actually. It's pretty relevant. But yeah. um, I think, I mean, it's, I don't want to say, like, oh, go go do something that it's causing you, like, great anxiety. I think that, like, people see, um, people see signs where they want to see signs, and that can just be, like, just as useful of information, you know? Whether it's, like, a sign or not. I mean, I don't really believe... And that as much I believe in like what we see and what that says about our perception and what that says about our fears. Mm. But I think that writing is really difficult. It's like, I mean, if we're talking about burnout, I don't, I do not, I do not like advocate for pushing through burnout, but, but I do think that being filled with anxiety when you're sitting down to write can also be a sign that like there's something trapped in you and it's like going to be very hard to excavate, mm. but maybe worth it. Yeah. I think that writing is hard, especially, I mean, you, you're such a, your writing is really like it digs really deep. It's really poetic and like emotionally intimate, not to freak out your 12 year old student, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so I can really understand why you sitting down to write might be intimidating versus like a financial journalist. <laughs> not that they might not face some anxiety as well. Just right. like obviously getting ideas on a page is like can be really overwhelming, even if it's like the simplest of ideas. But when you're doing like self-excavation, it's really intimidating. I think that like pushing through to the other side, though, is like <clears throat> the beauty of art. Like you said, like art that has suffering, like that's. I think that's part of it is like for me mining the absolute like chaos inside of my brain and sharing it feels like a kind of calling. Mm -hmm. I, I was looking at an old journal entry of mine where I was like, this is from like 2014. I had to do it for an assignment, but um, I'm like taking this seminar thing. Cool. <laughs> Which I can, I can tell you about later, but Please. um. And I was looking, and I, I had found this, like, article that was had really touched me. I was, like, still working in HR, and it was talking about your ego versus your calling and, like, differentiating between the two because I think that I'm kind of over, like, calling discourse. Like, what's your calling? Mm -hmm. I think it's sort of, like, it's it can be sort of obnoxious, and at this point it's often, like, meant to describe, like, success through, like, really specific capitalist measures. Right. But... The, the the point of this distinction was basically like, wait, I wish I could find it. Do you want to try? 
I'm trying to think of like where I read this. Ego versus calling. Oh, I know where it is. Nice. Yeah, wait, you just sit tight for like two seconds. I'm going to find it. I also want to say just a little riff while you look for that. Please do. That like, and also I'm just being poetic here, that like it's not so much like your calling as your answer. You know what I mean? Like it's like your answer to how we're going to deal with all the shit we've been dropped into, you know, or like with being alive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's like, think about how many different ways people find to answer to that. And that's more so because calling implies that like someone like assigned you this job before you got here and you have to like pick it up and deliver. I guess that works for the more spiritual folks out there. No, I completely agree. It's more of like, it's more blurry than that, but I just found it. Okay. So it says ego fears, not having or doing something calling fears, not expressing or being something. Ego needs needs anxiety to survive. Calling needs silence to survive. Ego manifests as burnout. Calling manifests as fulfillment. Ego focuses on the result. Calling focuses on the process. Ego wants to preserve the self. Calling wants to impact others. It's so funny that 2014 me found this like absolutely shocking. I mean, <laughs> um, it's it's not that surprising, I guess, but. It is on point, but I would argue that some of those weren't either or. Like, what was the last one again? Ego wants to preserve the self. Calling wants to impact others. Like, I don't find those two things to be verses, you know? If anything, like, kind of like what I was saying earlier about, like, my fear of when people don't like my writing of it, me, me being not part of the world, is, like, I feel like that... preservation of self kind of comes through impacting others you know what i mean or like does that make sense yes like we are ourselves with each inside of ourselves and with each other and for me when i'm more connected to other people is when i feel i often feel the ability to be more connected to myself is that true maybe i don't agree with that I don't know. I think like I I can see it both ways because on the one if I think for instance about like a mean comment I receive, um, I'm kind of like, well, am I just sort of I just want everyone to like me, or is this about like the work, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that those questions are sometimes hard for me to tell. Like I sometimes can't parse between the two. I think that the way that I think they're connected is that. I sometimes think like, I don't want to live in a world where we are purposely misunderstanding each other, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of, it is about me, but it's also about like a broader worldview that like, I don't want to be a part of. Word. And I, I, so yeah, I feel that too. And it's hard sometimes to draw the line between like, between those things, because like, for example, I feel like a lot right now is like, there's a lot of against, you know what I mean? Like of, of like people reacting against things or coming out against things. And I was thinking and talking about this, um, with like call out culture around, especially recently in like queer community in Brooklyn, like calling out people who have been abusers or have been accused of abuse and, and sexual assault. Um, and that it was this complete, just like, like throwing away of those people. Like we're going to like publicly shame you and call you out for this thing. And then we're going to like 
throw you away. You know what I mean? Ostracize. Yeah. And so it's like this, my thing is, and I'm not ever going to tell someone who is, has been traumatized or harmed how to heal, but it's this idea that like, of like bucking against something as being like somehow the way that people can heal or that, or that the score can be evened or something like that. And for me that like, that just doesn't work. You know what I mean? Like, and I feel like, I don't know when you said like purposely misunderstanding each other. I think that it's like, that's our way of dealing with the pain of the divide, you know, like that it's like so painful to be so divided from each other's experiences. And in that space, in that divide, because it's such like this, like chasm, like so much toxic shit, like fills that space in between. But then instead of trying to like close the space, it seems almost like when we push against each other, then it like widens it and leaves more room for for the stuff to fill it in like the you know like just the fear and the anger and like the hurt to just more that will flood in into the space in between and i don't know where i'm going with that really because i'm not ever going to be like someone who has been harmed sexually you know sexually assaulted be like you need to close the space between you and the person who harmed you but i'm like is there a bridge or something like what can we do you know like with that with that space in between what you're saying reminds me a lot of like um Ruth Wilson Gilmore's like abolition perspective. She's she talks a lot about she's like a an abolitionist, a prison abolitionist. Mm-hmm. And she talks a lot about how um oh sorry, my alarm, my watch alarm is going off. I don't know if you can hear that. Mm-mm. I don't know. I actually have had that that watch has had an alarm on it for years and I don't know how to turn it off and it just goes off like three times a day. You need to throw Isn't that, that cool? watch away. <laughs> It's like an old Casio watch I've worn in years, and I just hear it beep three times a day. It's totally insane. You're just keeping anyway. it for comfort of the ritual at that point. <laughs> yeah, it's a ritual. I that's actually a good idea. I should like have some sort of like every time it goes off, I uh-huh. should think about something specific. That would make it a ritual. <laughs> like I'll do a CBD page every time it goes off. <laughs> um. Anyway, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Um, she talks about how as humans, like, we're so used to retributive justice. And, like, when someone wrongs us, we want them to be disciplined. And that's just, like, how our minds work. And that we... And um, part of the reason is because we don't have any framework for, like, rehabilitative justice. Or, like, we forget that, like, actually we don't personally get justice when someone else is punished. That's because we have no... We have no, like social support for victims Mm -hmm. it's all about punishing perpetrators Mm -hmm. and it's like so we're focused all on punishment instead of on the people who have been wronged and but this is just like how our it's just where our brains go every time and so even um i mean obviously i think call out culture is a response to the fact that like our official institutions are so so inadequate that like obviously we take on um what's it called? Like vigilante justice. Mm -hmm. It's like this idea that we, we are going to bring justice upon people because like the state won't do it. Right. Except for it ends up so much being like the justice quote unquote that the state does bring on. Like, like prison is, is putting people who in some way broke this, what we assume is the social contract or like canceling them, (laughs) canceling them, putting them out of sight out of mind and that's what happened to a lot of these people that were being called out they had to leave brooklyn they weren't like allowed to come to community events and like 
You know what I mean? And it's very, and, and other people besides me saw that sad and kind of frightening parallel where it's like, even in the space of our own communities where we do get to make the rules in a way, even though obviously they're not separate from the world and we're all carrying like this heavy, sad world within us all, in every interaction, right? But that right. when we get to make the rules, we still tend towards doing things in a kind of parallel way to these systems we're actually trying to dismantle many of us right right i know that's kind of like the weird irony of like that people were talking about about like arresting Mm -hmm. police officers which i think like of course we're working within the system now right so i i would never be against bringing justice or like seeking out like charges of course but there is i think it's it's worthwhile to like think about you know in a different world like what what would we do in that scenario if we had like more rehabilitate a more rehabilitative approach to wrongdoing. I mean, obviously, like what start what it starts how it starts is with providing social services. Obviously, when it comes to like actually bad actors who are just like whatever, like serial killers, no matter what they're given or I whatever. Know, obviously, right? that's like <laughs> it gets story. more complicated. But I think what a lot of abolitionists are asking for is for people to just start imagining what they could look like instead of like continuing to imagine how we can like make our like punishment system more sophisticated and more like humane when like it's inherently inhumane. Right. And I even think about like how far back that goes to like punishments, like in schools. And obviously I'm not even talking about the school to prison pipeline, which obviously we know the direct factual correlations there, but I mean, like take it back. Like I I got in a lot of trouble as a kid. Like I was just, Well, I wonder why. I think I was loud and opinionated and always just kind of different. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And but like, I remember being like in kindergarten and like getting in trouble and I had to go like sit like facing the wall while everyone played. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Like, what? Like, even if you think about how we punish like kids or like all the way back then or like, you know, a kid messes up, whether it's in a family where they're going to get like popped or in a family where they're going to have to, like, sit in the other room and listen to the family watch a movie and eat popcorn and have fun together as their punishment. You know, like, the concept of punishment itself is so wild, and it goes so deep into, like, our coding because it's there to keep us in line. But then I'm like, why? who drew these lines, and why are we trying to stay within them? Like, you know, and it's just like, I don't know. It, all of that, obviously, between being a kindergartner staring at the wall in the corner while everyone played and, like, the prison industrial complex, there's a lot of space, but there's also, there's something connected there, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait, it's 2.02. I know. Do We're, you what? I have to I have to teach a, a young Jew at two thirty, but I feel like we okay. really veered off. I love that we're at like prison <laughs> abolitionism, but <laughs> that's where I want to be. Can we talk for like fifteen more minutes? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. One second, I'm gonna take my sweater off. <sighs> I'm freezing, so it's really interesting to see you be hot. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know why I'm usually really freezing in my apartment, but I don't know what's going on right now. Um, maybe I'm just, like, so riled up about the prison industrial complex. I mean, shit, it makes my blood boil, so that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. But actually, I felt like we were so off track by talking about that. I mean, we're always on track because it's pressing and it needs to be talked about. But if you think about it, like, part, like, in punishment is this idea of causing pain or taking away pleasure. You know what I mean? 
Like the Mm -hmm. idea of like the movie night example, because I cite that because it's happened to me, right? Like we're like taking away this pleasurable thing. Like you don't get to watch your favorite movie with the family and, and eat popcorn and have this treat or the pain. Like I'm, you're going to get like the belt. You know what I mean? Like those are the two ways we do punishment. So there is a, yeah. I mean, I think like pain avoidance is such a like strong impulse in, in humans. And it, like, since we're kids, it's obviously, like, one of our organizing principles for, like you said, like, punishment. But I think um, also, like, it often comes down to ostracization. Ostracization. That is a really hard word. (laughs) Wait, ostracization. It sounded like you said ostracization. (laughs) I know, but, like, ostracization sounds like it's missing a syllable, but I'm... Ostracization. Nope. Ostracization. But... You know, if you go back and look at, like, human societies in prehistoric times, like, banishing someone from the community was, like, the ultimate punishment, Mm -hmm. you know? I think that this, you know, comes back to, like, negative comments on the internet, too. Hmm. It feels... It feels bad to to think that you're being pushed out mm-hmm. or you're not being embraced by people in your, like, quote-unquote community. It's, like, one of the worst... Um, it's it's one of like our our base fears as people, and and, and one of our like biggest tools. I feel like it comes back to belonging and the vow, and like I think like all these are really related. It's I guess it's like a kind of emotional pain, but I think like pa- that av- avoidance of that like drives all of our decisions in ways that like we don't even fully understand. Wanting to belong, wanting to not hurt, like you know, wanting to feel good. If you think back about, like, if you think back on your biggest moments of indecision, I feel like at least, or I'm saying generally, but for me, I guess, a lot of it was about, like, whether I was ready to, like, endure pain. You know? Yeah. One thing I was thinking about, um, I know we got so off, off track, but I wanted to talk about some of the things that you've written that I feel like sort of touched on this. Um Two or a few different ones stuck out to me, but okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna just like go through some of them, okay? Cool. I feel so famous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so one thing that I feel like we could just like address at least is um, at least quickly is that you wrote about ordinary things that bring you extraordinary joy, mm-hmm. which I feel like is um, like a classic response to the idea that like you can look at the world two ways. I feel like you open that piece talking about how you'd been in a recent headspace where everything was annoying you. Mm-hmm. And all you did was basically shift your mindset to think about all the things that don't annoy you and how that was like, and you wrote about that transition and how it was like, trans- like how it kind of transformed your perspective, which I think is really relevant to antinatalism. True. And also relevant to what you're talking about, about this driving force of of this need to belong because in that piece part of what i was saying i liked and cherished about these small things that were bringing me joy was that it felt like it connected me to everyone else you know what i mean like that that was the place we meet is in this like these just mundane little things that show this rhythm in the world and we're all like on beat with each other you know Hundred percent. I feel like if I think about the times I'm the happiest and the times I'm the saddest, like you can almost map them perfectly to like whether I feel a sense of belonging, right? Like in my community or like with my people, right? And that and that's actually interesting because I think 
well, I don't know. I was about to open a whole can of worms, but I think like my relationship to pain, my personal relationship to pain has kind of been shaped by being like a trans person in a lot of ways, which has, because of the way things are set up, it involves a lot of feeling of not belonging. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, so, um, if I trace that, like, I feel like I've been carrying a lot of pain my whole life before I even knew what to call that pain. You know what I mean? Where yep. before I knew where that pain had come from, some of it like was more clear to me. Like I was a really big person, like a not healthy big person. Like it wasn't healthy for me. Didn't come from a good place. None of that. And didn't make my life easy <laughs> and that for me i was like i know that i have pain around this around seeing fat people get made fun of in the like by everybody about being made fun of sometimes myself for that about clothes not fitting about like all these you know never seeing myself reflected in who was cool and pretty that pain had such a direct like i could trace it you know like it had a tracker on it but like for all the shit that i was feeling about my gender and, and who i was and having no words for it which is part of the problem like it was like an untraceable pain which is like the easiest to like let consume you because you're like who else feels this pain and it comes back to the belonging like with the even the pain i felt for being like a big person a fluffy person i knew so many other people could feel that pain but for this unnameable pain it was like damn i'm feeling this pain i don't know where it comes from and i may or may not be completely alone in it and that shows again like this you know how like i love being alone but i don't want to feel like i'm alone in my existence <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> solitude is different from loneliness exactly yeah right. important distinction yeah but then so to flip it i be, i think a lot i end up thinking a lot about like do i wish i was born like a cisgender man like is that something that i wish and then i always come back to no for a plethora of reasons mostly that the majority of cis men are garbage um <laughs> <laughs> and that i wouldn't be Poor who i was men. oh man they work to do um but like that the idea that i wouldn't be who i was if i had been born that way but then i the pleasure piece of it is a big thing for me like i think that like as a queer person and as a trans person i have access to a whole different breed of pleasure that like i feel is really special not that it i don't think it's the same side of the coin like back to that convo i don't think it cancels out the pain that i feel or have felt but like this idea of like being able to see like multitudes in people and being able to see multitudes in the world and have like so much less limit on sexuality and like how my body moves and how it gets touched and how i touch other people and like what like just the freakiness that's available, the sensuality that's available, I do think is something special. And again, it doesn't cancel that pain out. It's almost like they just like hold hands and walk down the street or some shit. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting you brought that up because I talked about this in my podcast last week, which is that I think queer communities have, um, have done be because they've been sort of gatekept from some of these like more institutional, um, like pillars of modern life uh they have oftentimes been sort of really like special communities where what's the word i'm looking for i feel like they've had the space and the freedom and honestly the motivation to like recreate some of these like really important parts of being alive like or sorry reimagines so, like mm -hmm. love sex commitment like a lot of um like, a lot of these ideas that, like, are sort of, like, liberating people, they start, I think they start with, like, LGBTQ uh, communities, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. They're always starting with, with 
And I think like community in general, like aside from that, like I think like chosen family, I think that the emphasis on community is like really special in the queer community. And I think it's like, it's something that, I mean, I follow like a lot of my, like the people I follow on Twitter who are like LGBTQIA talk a lot. They make a lot of fun of straight people for just like (laughs) not having a culture or a community or like anything, or like, it's like an awful culture. (laughs) And I think that there's only to be said for like, um, like creating those spaces because you don't have access to the kind of like awful, boring ones that are like handed to everyone else. Yeah. That was and really an eloquent way of saying no, that. No, I, I, but I totally, <laughs> I feel you. And it's, it takes me back. I was thinking when you were saying that about how I just called cis men garbage. And it's like, obviously, I don't think that every <laughs> cis man is garbage. And yeah. I also, the, but the thinking of like, even within that, like, kind of like, okay, if you're shut out of one type of existence or in so many ways, queer people rely on chosen family because they, we literally lose biological family or like don't have access to so many things that like, you know, other folks do have access to. But like, even in terms of like my relationship to masculinity, like it was not something I inherited. I had to like fight for myself and I got to shape it from the ground up. I didn't have someone else shaping it for me. You know what I mean? Like as I figured myself out and was given the room and the things I needed to be my full self, I got to like, I got to do it. I got to make the rules. This kind of comes back to what we were talking with the cancel culture. Like when we're doing it ourselves, like we get to make the rules. And so often we see reflected in the rules we make the shittiness of the rules we've been handed right but like in terms of like masculinity for me i don't i mean and i had to work through this but like i get to be sweet and loving and cry and intimate and (laughs) i love intimates trending in our conversation you know what i mean (laughs) like i get (laughs) i get to do those things i got to make those rules for me and i do feel that i'm probably a lot more free than a lot of cis men feel you know even at then, and you had to endure a lot for that freedom. Right. Which then brings us back to the, like, art with suffering hitting harder. But, like, gender with suffering hits harder or something. I don't know what the, what the no, analogy there is. There's something beautiful about the idea that almost, like, having community sort of ripped away from you due to the, like, um, kind of bigotry of mainstream society ends up pushing people towards communities that are a lot more fulfilling and enriching than the one that they'd otherwise be a part of. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that that's not one of like pain and and challenge of its own kind. It, right. But it's kind of beautiful that like those two go together. Yeah. I think in that way it is queer community and I think trans experience is a really really powerful example of pain and pleasure coexisting and swirling whirling twirling up into one thing whether it's in one body or one community whatever it is right yeah and yeah I that brings want- me to oh sorry what were you say no i was like for some reason i'm feeling really drawn to talk about kink but i'm like maybe it just doesn't fit in here maybe we don't have time maybe we were just going other places <laughs> we can have it be another conversation although my parents do listen to this podcast <laughs> okay <laughs> all right i'll hold back <laughs> 
I interviewed them recently for the podcast and my dad was like, you know, I'm happy to read anything, but you know, I don't, it's not my favorite to read about your love life. (laughs) (laughs) That was diplomatic. (laughs) I thought that was sweet. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, yeah, I bet. Um, (laughs) No, I mean, I've written so much about that stuff, but so I think we can definitely cover it. But a couple pieces that I wanted to mention before we tragically have to wrap (laughs) up because you have to tutor is... um, Somebody in the comments wrote about a Mayan ritual. I want to read you the comment, and it relates to something that you wrote um, that I want to read from as well. Um, this is this is the comment now. You're writing about antinatalism. Reminded me of this book called I Rigoberta Menchu about an indigenous Mayan woman living in what is now Guatemala. In the beginning of the book, she writes about how when a baby is born in Mayan culture. The family and community all come together to mourn and grieve because the baby is going to endure so much suffering throughout its life. Wow. Which I think is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of a story you wrote about being born. <laughs> Are you remembering? Well, is it the name one? Yes. Yes. It was a name you it was a it was one that you wrote about your name. Um, I'm gonna read a quote that I pulled. Cool. Of yours. A couple feet away from them, my mother, who looked like a Rembrandt painting of Janis Joplin, opened up her body and allowed my surprisingly purple head to start entering this realm. Yes, there is a picture of my head emerging from my mother's vagina, smack dab in the middle of the photo album. I like that this is called crowning, kind of like acknowledging that each of us has these precious gems, the royalty of blood itself, before the world starts stripping that kind of wealth away and swaddling us in all the suffocating stuff. Wow. Yeah. Similar, huh? Yeah. I mean, I guess that's part also of being a writer and an artist is recognizing that you might be brand new, but everything you're thinking and feeling is not, (laughs) you know, (laughs) which is part of the belonging. That is not what I took away from the parallels there. (laughs) Oh, no. I meant like the idea that like that the ancient Mayans were feeling and thinking this, these things. And I'm here in, in 20, whatever it is, thinking and feeling these things, you know, which I find to be comforting, even if all the stuff that we're thinking and feeling were to be painful, even though it's not, that still would be comforting to me to not be alone. And it actually brings me to a question, which is, I said to someone the other day who was having a really hard time, I was like, well, if it makes you feel better, like you're not alone in that. And then I was like, does that make anyone feel better? (laughs) I think it does. I think this is comes back to our point about belonging. Right. So much I think I think it's nice to feel like our more complex experiences are able to be captured and shared. And that I think we have a lot of these experiences that we know that we all share, you know, like joy on a spring day or like something that's a little bit more simple. Mm-hmm. But I think what makes me feel alone, like maybe when I'm on in a more depressive state, is feeling really like a mystery to myself and to other people. And that like, it's just a bridge we'll never be able to cross. Mm-hmm. And I think that when I read something that that bridges that divide, um, it, it like heals me in some way. Yeah. So, so I think that I think that is it is nice to know you're not alone. You know, <laughs> it's right? Just Even not to state the obvious, but 
Even, well, right. I mean, I guess that that's something we always say, though. Like, d- you're not alone in that if it helps. And it's like, it does kind of. And it also, I'm still feeling and all the things I'm feeling. No, you're right. It's like a, li- it's a limited tool. It's, a, right. it's not like, it's step one, you know? It's not actually, like, solving it. Right. But, I mean, so one thing that we can maybe end on <clears throat> is, um, I think the last essay that I edited of yours was you talking about not wanting to be defined by your struggle as a trans guy. Um, Do you feel like that is related to the conversation we're having about like our relationship with pain and pleasure as it relates to like who we are in the world? Yeah, I guess it's like, I like made this decision a couple of years ago, (laughs) acting like it was such a concrete decision. Um, I made this decision to like, not, I call it making a house of hurt, like not making a home out of hurt. Um, meaning that like, I might visit that place, but it's not where I reside. Um, and I think that like, with like writing and sharing about the struggles involved with being a trans person, um, I want to, to share them for the sake of like, maybe letting other trans people know they're not alone and for the sake of like kind of putting words to something as a way of kind of extricating it from my inside. So it doesn't just live there anymore, which maybe will make it a little bit more manageable. And I want to share it for the sake of people connecting the dots between the way they've struggled and the way I ways I've struggled, even if we don't have the same experiences again, because connection is power and healing. Um, But, like, I don't, I think that the world that I want to live in is a world where, like, that isn't why I gain, like, gain publicity, like, as a writer, you know? Like, that it's not like, oh, look at this niche story, or, like, look, this is interesting because it's so different, you know? And it's, like, I don't, it's the same as being, like, I don't think anyone wants to live in a colorblind world. Well, that's not true. Lots of people do. But those of us who know what's really good and who are really with it and really want to build the world that should be don't want to live in a colorblind world. We don't want to live in a world that, like, doesn't mean that people's different identities and struggles and pleasures and joys like aren't like vast and like endless the plurality of ages exactly right like we'd want to live in a world that just has room for all those worlds and that ha- is safe for all those people and all those worlds and like i don't you're right like i don't think that i want a life without pain not just because it's unrealistic but because i don't want a life that's all of any one thing you know what i mean like i don't yeah one homogeneity yeah it's not and if we look maybe that is natural to not want that look at nature <laughs> nature is the most not homogenous thing in the world like look i mean in- forests forests have to i know that this is a weird example given all the fires mm-hmm. that are caused by climate disaster but also forests naturally have to burn right in this- order to be healthy right that there's right that there is built into the programming of this existence, which we can question all day long. And that maybe is just our burden. Like back to the garden of Eden, we ate from the tree, quote unquote, we got these brains, we got this consciousness and it's a burden and a blessing and it can be both at once. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a kid, I used to 
just be so angry at Eve for eating the apple. By the way, why do we have to blame it on Eve? Well, I was about to say, very <laughs> intentional blaming of Eve. Yeah, they really do paint Adam as just like, oh, okay, you want to eat the apple? I'll eat the apple. Yeah. But, um, well, maybe that was, an, on the flip side, maybe that was a way of recognizing women and, and fem, feminine people as having the bravery to reach beyond just this kind of more mundane, simple, simple life to be like, even if it hurts, I want to know and feel more. So, Wow, to you. <laughs> <laughs> That was a chef's kiss for those listening. <laughs> um, okay, well, I think this is perfect. I, I mean, you have six minutes until you have to tutor. Oh, shit. All right. Well, I should go get my ducks, my Torah ducks in a row. Um, I, <laughs> I really... want you to tutor me sometime on the Torah. Well, actually, I'm thinking of offering a Zoom class for people who want to learn more about Judaism and do some learning like that. I'm all for it, T.A. I feel like the more people who can listen to and learn from you, the better. Oh, you are very sweet. And I feel the same about you, which is why I'm so happy that you have a podcast. Um, okay. I miss you and I want to come up and visit you, by the way. Yeah, let's work it out. I mean, it is okay. kind of a long drive, but we'll work it out. Okay, okay. All right. So I'm going to I'm gonna hang. stop my... Re- okay, wait. Don't stop until you say bye to me. Did we already say bye? Okay, that's fine. We already said bye. So he did stop it before he said bye to me, <laughs> but I forgive him. I actually blame myself because I'm 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 still forgetting to to give proper instructions as the quote unquote host of this podcast. But okay, um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with T. He's amazing. I'm going to link to his social and some of his writing in the email. So um, be sure to go back and check that out if you're interested. I think it would be worth your while. Um, And now I'm going to get into an audio reading of my last newsletter. So if you want to stick around and listen to that, sit tight. And if you don't, I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Part one, badness. In November 2017, The New Yorker published a story called The Case for Not Being Born. I clicked assuming it was satire but instead found a dead serious interview with a philosopher named David Benatar, who thinks, essentially, that life isn't worth it. Quote, Benatar believes that life is so bad, so painful, that human beings should stop having children for reasons of compassion, wrote Joshua Rothman. At first, I couldn't tell how serious this guy was. I thought he might be a provocateur, using his ideas as a conduit to address poverty, war, or climate change, but no. In his book, Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence, Benatar argues that birth is always harmful because life itself is, and this is my favorite phrase, permeated by badness. Benatar is an antinatalist, meaning he assigns a negative value to birth. Here's how he sees it. We are constantly hungry, thirsty, hot, cold, bored, anxious, lonely, unsatisfied, manic, exhausted, itchy, sore, sad. We're relentlessly forced to work, forced on relentless errands, stuck in line, stuck in perpetual states of want. We want to sleep but can't sleep well, need to wake up but don't want to. We venerate youth, age incessantly, grieve death, then die ourselves. People may think they're happy, Benatar says, but they're just lying to themselves about how unbearable life actually is. Quote, of course life is not bad in every way, he writes. Neither is death bad in every way. However, both life and death are, in crucial respects, awful. Together, they constitute an existential vice, the wretched grip that enforces our predicament. End quote. His solution? Never be born in the first place. Benatar didn't invent antinatalism. 
The term was coined by a Belgian philosopher named Defile de Guru, who published a book on the topic in 2006. And you can find traces of it throughout history by other names. But Benatar is a big voice in the recent rise of antinatalism. Another voice? Raphael Samuel, who last year announced his plans to sue his parents for conceiving him without his consent. In addition to finding this worldview unfortunate, I can't help but find it funny. Maybe because I think it's a bit true, as most dark humor is. Or maybe because the antinatalist movement feels tragically ironic, like a Greek myth in which a group of men come together upon a mountaintop to agree that life is terrible, then promise to spread the word to anyone who thinks otherwise. Can you imagine if after millions of years of roaming the planet, proliferating our species, tirelessly improving our tools, and exerting dominion over the world, the logical conclusion of the quote, most intelligent creatures on earth was that actually life was the worst and it's all our parents' fault? You have to admit it's got a ring to it. I never forgot that New Yorker piece. When Avi drove home to Detroit in September, leaving me alone in our apartment for two weeks, I thought of it often, especially the part where Benatar describes life as a series of inconveniences. With less to distract me and no company to keep, my day-to-day took on an insular rhythm that was initially freeing and eventually suffocating. When I was listless, I had to focus myself. When I was depressed, I had to self-soothe. When I was messy, I had to clean it up. Of course, this is always the case. But my quarantined solitude brought the monotony of existence into clearer focus. I recalled Benatar's words. Quote, the quality of human life is, contrary to what many people think, actually quite appalling. It still sounds like a punchline to me, but I think that's why I like it. I don't agree, though. Central to his theory is the idea that suffering is worse than joy is good, so better to not be born at all. He explains this by positing that no one would trade five minutes of the worst pain for five minutes of the greatest pleasure. But wouldn't they? Why do people run marathons, or write novels, or maintain complicated friendships? The negotiation between pain and pleasure seems almost like an organizing principle for a life well-lived. Thinking, on a micro level, of massaging a sore muscle, or scratching a mosquito bite, or putting a heating pad on my cramping uterus. Thinking, on a macro level, of finding my calling, or falling in love, or making and sharing art. All experiences which would be dulled if not for the pain that preceded them. This isn't to say I don't think life can be and often is terrible. It just seems too simple a measuring unit for determining its value, or maybe just too cruel. When Rothman asks Benatar if perhaps the solution is to improve the world, he replied, It'll never happen. The lessons never seem to get learned. Unpleasantness and suffering are too deeply written into the structure of sentient life to be eliminated. It's a convenient answer, not without some merit, but definitely without a trace of imagination or nuance. I can't help but see his mental framework as a consequence of a narrow mind rather than a clear one. Or maybe I'm just comforting myself. I'm sure that's what he would say. Part 2. Complications One morning while Avi was gone, in a decision I cannot explain, I went outside to install a rack on my bike in my pajamas and forgot my keys. I realized it right as the door closed behind me, and within seconds a confluence of emotions descended. Sheepishness. Dread, a pathetic trace of thrill. I went outside to call our super, who didn't answer, and then management company, which was closed, and then maintenance guy, observing Shabbat, and then leasing agent, who said that, for some reason, could I believe it? He had a key to every single building he leased except mine. I could believe it, actually. While I waited for someone to call me back, I thought I might as well install the bike rack. 
So I laid everything out, feeling industrious, then realized I needed pliers, which I hadn't grabbed. So I just sat there cross-legged on the sunny concrete in my sweatpants and Adidas slides and giant yellow t-shirt that said, I swear to God, walk of shame, in all caps. I looked at the trees, fucked around on my phone. Every so often I'd call someone and every time they wouldn't answer. Hours passed. At some point, my upstairs neighbor called down to tell me he and his wife were leaving soon and that I could hang out in their place with Gabrielle until I got a hold of someone. For this, I was inconsolably grateful, partially because of their kindness, but also because Gabrielle is their pug I occasionally walk with a face like a velvet pillow. We sat around together all day while I listened intermittently to people's answering machines. Around 2 p.m., I caved and ordered food as I was starving, and around 4 p.m., I finally admitted no one was going to call me back, so I called a locksmith, who arrived within half an hour, unlocked my door in under a minute, then charged me $160. You have to laugh. I didn't regret the day in the end, even though it cost me five days' rent. I'm lucky in that it wasn't that big of a deal, that I have kind neighbors, that pugs exist. The irony wasn't lost on me, either. I asked for novelty and found it. I longed to not be locked in my apartment anymore and then got locked out. The experience was amusing, irritating, and memorable in the way disruption often can be. It was mildly painful and mildly pleasurable in equal measure, not quite fitting into Benatar's existential calculus, like so much of life doesn't. For instance, how would you label the time a hungover woman threw up on my brother on his subway commute, forcing him to call off his whole morning so he could run to a nearby dry cleaner and then buy a spare shirt in a hurry? I remember him calling me on his walk to the office from Uniqlo, feeling lighter from all his cancelled meetings, both of us laughing about how awful it was but also kind of how pleasant it was to be reminded that even the most predictable day can veer off course. Or how about the time just last week when my wallet fell out of my coat pocket on a walk, and I spent all day retracing my steps in a panic, only to have a local person DM me five hours later that they'd found it. Avi and I walked over to their place to pick it up, gave them some edibles, had a lovely conversation. Are these stories permeated by badness or permeated by goodness? It must be a little bit of both. Part 3 Trade-offs. In the height of my listless solitude in September, around the time I began to wonder, harmlessly but genuinely, what the point of life was, I watched My Octopus Teacher, the Netflix documentary about a man who befriends an octopus. It ended up being the perfect little vehicle for big questions, about loneliness and solitude, coexistence versus companionship, about the quote point of an octopus, which spends most of its short life hunting or being hunted, only to procreate and die soon after which just feels so unfair. I loved it. Plus, the octopus looks like Bug. After it ended, I looked up a relevant piece I remembered reading in the London Review of Books in 2017. It's called The Sucker, The Sucker by Amya Srinivasan, and it's one of those essays, somehow both poetic and academic, that makes you wonder how the hell someone wrote it, or even thought to write it. Naturally, it's about the octopus, its strange history, unusual biology, and mysterious inner life. The part I remembered most is the idea that the octopus has a short lifespan, between one and four years, depending on the species. Because, despite being a mollusk, it lacks a shell. But it lacks a shell for a reason. Srinivasan writes, In its early evolutionary history, the octopus gave up its protective molluscan shell in order to embrace a life of unboundaried potential. But the cost was an increased vulnerability to toothy and bony predators. An animal with a soft body and no shell cannot expect to live long and so harmful mutations that take effect only once it has been alive for a couple of years will spread soon through the population. 
The result is a life that is experientially rich, but conspicuously brief. David Benatar would argue the octopus should never be worn in the first place, right? I mean, surely the average life of an octopus is worse than the average life of a human. They dedicate their short existence to staving off starvation and hiding from sharks until they've successfully passed the survival torch so they can immediately die. But of course, that's missing something important about the richness of the tentacle shell-free experience. May we all one day know it. This is why Benatar's framing is inadequate at capturing existence in general. It looks only at the facts, bifurcating them into painful and pleasurable, instead of embracing how they intersect and rely on each other in surprising ways. I'm both enamored by and terrified of these blurry lines. Nothing was more unnerving to me in my early 20s than the realization that growing up wasn't about avoiding mistakes but making them. I still think that's awful, even if I also find it freeing. I'm endlessly drawn to these contradictions, like that living in the moment might mean forgetting it, or that closeness requires distance, or that fearing death makes us feel alive. How could you define any of these experiences as painful or pleasurable when they're obviously and inherently both? Or as Boris from The Goldfinch put it, in a line I've never forgotten, what if our badness and mistakes are the very thing that set our fate and bring us round to good? What if, for some of us, we can't get there any other way? I got a-